Ready for the word? Yes. Amen. Good. You guys can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue on in our awesome series through this letter. And it's just, it's an exciting time to be living. It's uh, one week away from Easter. And you know, it's, it's true that every Sunday is like Easter Sunday because Jesus is as much alive today as he will be next week. So he is risen from the dead. You guys want to practice this, by the way? Uh, he is risen. That's good. That's something fun that's been happening for thousands of years as we have proclaimed uh, each Lord's Day, each Sunday that Jesus is alive, but particularly on Resurrection Sunday next week. So excited for that time. Again, I just want to remind you that we have those invitation cards. Grab a big stack of them today and, and hang on to them. Be giving them to friends and to family, to coworkers, or just to, to the person at the restaurant. Uh, we want to spread the life and the love of Jesus, and no better way to do that than a personal invitation to come on Easter and um, it, it's one thing to invite somebody, which is awesome. It's another thing to take that next step and bring them with you. You say, hey, I'm going to Easter Sunday. Will you come with me and, uh, and bring them? And that is a great way for the life and the love of Jesus to spread in our community. So, um, but we're here. We're here to receive life today. We're here to receive God's living word because we have a living God, and he speaks to us in the Bible. So um, we're in First Peter chapter 2. You can open there uh, if you haven't already. I want to just remind you how the Word of God works, that when it is preached, it does not return void. It goes out, and you hear it, and the Holy Spirit hopefully activates it in your life. And Hebrews 4 talks about how for some people, the word of God is really no benefit to them at all because for the word of God to make the changes that it's intended to make in a person's life, it has to be mixed with faith. Hebrews 4 says the word must be mixed with faith or we are going to come up short from entering into all that God has promised for us. Amen? Amen. So today as we come to the word of God, as you are listening today and receiving God's word spoken to you, be asking the Lord, Lord, today, would you give me ears to hear and a heart to respond? Would you pray, God, would you give me faith today to believe your word? And then, God, give me power to live out your word. That's the kind of people that we want to be, right, who posture ourselves in such a way that we would hear the word of God and then with every intention, we would seek to live out God's word, that we would obey it. And so this is the word that we're going to receive today from 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking today at verses 21 to 25. Let me read the word of God as you look down in your Bible and receive it into your hearts. It says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body 
on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word is living and it's active because, Jesus, you are alive and you are active in this world. God, we thank you that you are going to use your word today to testify about who you are and what you have done. Lord Jesus, I pray for every ear that would hear today and every heart that would receive your word today. God, let it mix with faith. Let it bring the intended transformation that it's meant to bring. Would it bring salvation today for those who have not had their souls saved? Would it bring conviction today for the believer who has wandered and is straying away from the truth? Would it bring comfort and confirmation to those who are walking with you and in you and seeking to bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Lord, use your word today for every single one of us, wherever we might be, And God, would you get all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. So verse 21, we read, for to this you were called. Now, we touched on verse 21 at the end of our time last week where we've been learning about submission. And last week, we talked about submission in our working relationships. How was work this week, by the way, guys? Good? Okay, good, good. Uh, But Peter did not hold back from telling us some things that at first are kind of hard to hear. He told servants who were living good and noble lives that at times they may need to submit themselves to harsh and unjust masters. That's a little hard to receive. It kind of goes against our natural thinking. But you see, when a believer suffers for doing good... We are fulfilling our calling of being like Jesus Christ. See, the this in to this you were called is to be like Jesus in our suffering. The calling of a Christian is just that. You know what Christian means, right? Little Christ. That's what the word means. So if a servant is not greater than his master, we have to come to terms that as Christians, we will be called to suffer at times in the same way that our Lord suffered, in that we will often suffer for doing the right thing. Have you ever suffered for doing the right thing? Because that's what Christians are called to do. We are called to do the right thing in any given situation, even when our circumstances are not going in our favor. We choose the right path. We obey the word of the Lord. And sometimes what happens is we suffer for doing the right thing. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Here's the best part of having a calling to be like him is that Jesus never calls us to do something that he himself has not already done. And that's why we can say that we have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Fellowship. We, we do this together with Jesus. And think about it. Can you think of one thing that God commands his followers to do that he's not also willing to do himself. Jesus, contrary to what a lot of people sometimes think, is not some unengaged taskmaster. He's not a, you know, holding back and uninvolved 
disciplinarian. No, the word of God testifies that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He is a older brother. He's a trusted friend. He leads us in the calling to be like him. And so remember, he is our example. And we follow him. And if he's an example, it means that he's already done it. He did it first and he did it best. And we just follow his example. So look at the rest of verse 21. It says, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And we learned last week what that word example means. It comes from the idea of tracing. You know, um, I remember as a young kid, I wanted to be a great artist. And and I would get these pictures from like a a coloring book and I'd put another piece of paper and I, I would trace it and then I would think, wow, I'm such a great artist. You know, look at this thing I drew. I was just tracing it. But that's the idea of how we follow Jesus. It, it has the idea of a teacher who's writing the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then right below it, the student is writing the alphabet following the example of their teacher, meaning that when Jesus writes the letter A, we write the letter A. When Jesus writes the letter B, we write the letter B. And then we get to the letter Z, and we might mess up and write an S. But Jesus gives us another opportunity, another attempt, until we learn all of our letters. You know, it's, it's not like, well, you missed it. You don't know what a W is. You fail. He shows grace, and he shows mercy, and he's leading us until we patiently, until he patiently leads us. You ever tried to stumble across your words in front of a bunch of people? Yeah. He patiently and graciously leads us in our obedience to God. That's the whole point. Jesus was perfectly obedient to God, and we follow his example. Now, there was also that picture at the end of verse 21 of following in his steps. And remember that great picture I shared last week, if you were here, where It has the idea of a child stepping into the same footprints of their parents. This really, you know, shows well in in snow, like if you're walking through some fresh powder and it's deep and you take a step and the, the footprint's very visible and then the child comes and steps into the footprint of their parent. That's the same idea of when we follow in the steps of Jesus, we step where he has already stepped. So aren't you so glad that as you go through life, as you live out the Christian experience, that you are following Jesus' example, that you are stepping into his steps, that whether it's walking into good or bad, Jesus is able to understand it because he has already been there. And therefore, if he's already been there, he can have compassion on us as he leads us. Remember, Jesus is a compassionate leader, not a standing back taskmaster. Amen? So if Jesus is our example, one of the main areas we have been looking at his example is in submission. We've learned a lot about submission in the last two Sundays. We're going to be putting a pause on this series through 1 Peter as we 
uh, are in Easter Sunday and then Baptism Sunday. The following week, we're going to talk about submission in our family relationships. But so far, we've talked about submission in government relationships, submission in our working relationships. And isn't Jesus the best example in, in all of those ways? First, in our submission to government, Jesus did that perfectly. He allowed himself to suffer injustice from those whom the Father had appointed. And the Roman government was those who were leading at the time of Jesus in the place where he lived. And, you know, the Romans were supposed to be rewarding those who did good and punishing those who did evil. And yet Jesus submitted himself to them as they absolutely botched their job. <laughs> On Palm Sunday, as Jesus stood over Jerusalem, every Jewish person who said, Hosanna, Hosanna, I think in their minds as they said Hosanna, they wanted Jesus to come in and be a conquering military general, an earthly king who would wipe out the Romans and reestablish Jewish rule in Jerusalem. They wanted Jesus to come and establish an earthly government. But Jesus came to establish an even greater government. He came to establish the kingdom of God. And so on Palm Sunday, what the people wanted was for him to appoint an earthly government, and yet the Father appointed for him to suffer on a cross, which would bring about an eternal kingdom, and all who would believe upon the death and resurrection of Jesus can enter that kingdom. It's an endless kingdom. It, 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 it has no beginning, and it has no end. And so Jesus, on Palm Sunday, yes, they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. But a week later, they would be crying, crucify him, crucify him. And interestingly enough, it means the same thing, doesn't it? Hosanna and crucify him, isn't the end result the same, which is salvation, that's what we're going to talk about here today. We're talking about submission, which ultimately brings about salvation. Jesus not only submitted in government relationships, but also in his working relationships. Think of just how he works for the Father in submission to the Father's will, uh, not doing anything unless the Father had said to do it. And even before Jesus' public ministry, Jesus submitted himself as a tradesman to his adoptive earthly father, Joseph. And so Jesus learned obedience and hard work as he lived in submission in his working relationships. So Jesus is our example of submission, isn't he? Amen? Amen. And that's just one, or two, rather, of many of the areas of which Jesus can be an example to us. But can I say this? Is that Jesus is so much more than just an example to us. Jesus is a savior. So you can find a lot of good examples in this world. And we should be following the good examples of other people. Maybe you have a parent or a mentor or a, or a friend who is an example to you. you. You should follow the good example of other people. But make no mistake, there can only be one Savior. 
and that's Jesus Christ. He's an example, but he's so much more than that. He's a savior. And so you may have examples in your life. If your parents is a good example to you of hard work and and establishing a healthy and happy home, great, follow that example, but your parents cannot be your savior. You may have a mentor who's a good example of a disciplined and a joyful and a fun lifestyle. You just say, man, I want to live like that person lives. They just live a good life, but they can't save your soul. You may have a best friend, and they have helped you to become the person who you are today, and, and you would just, there's no one like this friend that you have, but there's no friend like Jesus who laid down his life to save your soul from sins. So have good examples, parents, mentors, friends, celebrities, whoever you want to follow as your examples in this life. But Jesus, though he is an example, he is so much more than that. He is a savior because he has been given the name, the name that is above all names the only name under heaven by which we must be saved because Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, the savior of the world. So don't just leave Jesus in the category of an example. Can't leave him in the category of a a good moral teacher. He's so much more than that because there is no preaching of the gospel if there's not the salvation that comes through the suffering of Jesus on the cross. So no matter how well we can speak of how Jesus lived, and look, Jesus lived the best life you could possibly live. Look in the history books. This man lived an amazing life, a great example to follow. But But look at the proportion to which the gospels focus on the final week of Jesus' life. Yeah, he healed people, he multiplied bread and fish for people, he seemed to live a very happy and joyful life, He, he put down those who tried to oppress and lift up those who were he put down the oppressors and lifted up those who were oppressed. He he did all these wonderful things, but but without him in that final week of his life going to a cross and dying for sins and being buried and being resu- resurrected from the dead, we, we would just have a good example, but we would not have a savior. We have to look at Jesus and how he suffered. And then if we're looking at Jesus and how he suffered, it's telling us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that it is, it's an example to us for us to follow in his steps. Now, we have to understand something very clearly right now. We have to understand that no amount of suffering on our part can ever bring about anyone's salvation. That is not what Peter is saying, that our suffering somehow earns us some measure of salvation. The more you suffer, the more saved you are. It's not at all what the Bible teaches. Because salvation is by grace through faith because Jesus suffered and died for us. But what Peter is saying is that you can pretty much expect that when you get saved, when you become a Christian, and you begin to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, you will suffer at times in this world. You can pretty much count on it. 
Peter will go on to say later, don't think that something strange is happening to you when you go through a trial for being a follower of Jesus. Acts says that through tribulation we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And I know how that comes across sometimes in our world. Why would I ever enter into some sort of religion or I know people call this a relationship, but why would I ever enter into something that calls me into suffering? And I get that. I get that that is actually one of the stumbling blocks that holds people back from entering into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But when you actually live it, when you actually experience how suffering brings salvation, how pain brings triumph and victory, it's, it's altogether changing. And, and you're not gonna be able to do this with your natural mind. This requires a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your life, where your mind actually gets renewed Whereas Peter says that we can be mindful of God when we suffer. I don't know how people can suffer in this life without being mindful of God. You ever watch somebody who's suffered who, who doesn't believe in God versus somebody who's suffering who absolutely loves Jesus and is mindful of God? It's pretty wild to watch just the difference of it. And when somebody suffers, being mindful of God, you, you, can get with, you can get through anything because you have this eternal hope that is set upon Jesus where you know that his kingdom has no end and that ultimately when you die, when that last suffering takes you out of this world, you're going to a place where there is no suffering, where there is no pain because Jesus takes us to that place. How did he take us to that place? Verse 22 to 23 tells us how. It says, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, some of these words might sound familiar to you. And the reason why is because Peter is pulling from that very well-known messianic prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53. And if you've never read that prophecy, Isaiah 53, somewhere right in the middle of your Bible, it was written 600 years prior to Jesus coming as a man to the earth. See, Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the Jews, and he came to fulfill all that was written 600 years prior by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, it's just chock full of prophetic foretelling of what Jesus would come to do. And so Peter, as he's talking to servants who are suffering under their unjust masters, then what better place to take those believers than to the excerpts of the suffering servants of Isaiah chapter 53. And here's the first excerpt or quotation that he pulls from Isaiah 53. He says about Jesus, he committed no sin. So that's a foundational fact about Jesus. You kind of just have to start there. That Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life, absolutely unblemished, morally perfect. There was never a moment in Jesus' life 
whether in thought or in word or in deed, that Jesus committed a sin. He always obeyed God. Now, Jesus certainly struggled with the temptation of sin, and that is how he can be a sympathetic high priest to us. He understands what it's like to have the human struggle of sin, but Jesus struggled against sin. Jesus never struggled with sin. He had no sin, and that's what qualifies him to be a savior. Anyone else in here qualified to be a savior? No. See, no, because we all know that we have sinned. Not a single one of us here, could, here today could honestly say that in thought and in word and in deed, we have never made a mistake. We have never missed the mark. But Jesus could say that, and that's what qualifies him to be a savior. There's this verse out of Hebrews that I've been meditating on for quite a while now. It's just been one of these favorite verses, I'd say, in the last few years. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 4 says this, consider him, that's Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Oh, that's good, huh? Anyone ever here today resisted your sin to the point of shedding your blood? The whole point is, Jesus has. He never committed sin. Peter goes on to say, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He never spoke a false word. And James says this, the book of James, that if you can tame the tongue, which is just like an unruly fire. It's a rudder that steers the whole ship, sets a forest ablaze, these tongues of ours. That if you can tame the tongue, you are a perfect person. Any perfect people in here today? No. The point is, no one can do it. We have all sinned with our tongues. Romans says this about our mouths, that our throats are an open grave and we have snake poison on our lips. But not Jesus. He never spoke a single false word. He spoke truth in life. No one could trap Jesus ever in the things that he said. They tried to. They tried to trap Jesus in what he would say. People might misunderstand Jesus. People might misapply the words of Jesus, but the deceit never rests upon the speaker. The deceit only ever rests upon the hearer. Jesus never spoke anything that would even come close to deceit. When Jesus spoke, it was perfection. Now that got me thinking about how I use my mouth. And that ought to cause us to think about how we use our mouths when we speak. And I believe we would have far less sin in our lives if we would allow God to be the master of our tongues. But I confess, that word confesses to say the same thing. I'm gonna say it right now with my mouth. I come short in that. I, I, I can stand up and preach the gospel and I try with every word that flows out of my mouth, I try for it to be the giving of life, but I, I, I fail in that. 
Every one of us have failed in that. All of us have open graves in our throats and snake poison on our lips, but not Jesus. Now, this week I was listening to this teaching on a particular location in Israel. Um, This next month, in the beginning, middle of May, I get to go to Israel for the first time. I'm super excited for that. Uh, Hopefully, it's not the last time I get to go to Israel because here's the thing. I'm going this time so that we can plan a a trip for the church in the next couple of years. Who's in? Who wants to go to Israel? Okay. That'd be super cool. So, I want to go. I want to experience it because I've never been there. I want to go with this church and have a great time exploring the places where Jesus walked. Because you realize that, right? Jesus was a real man who walked in a real place. You can go and visit the garden tomb and see it's empty, right? And there was this one particular place that I was listening about just as I'm preparing my heart to go there, and it's the Antonia Fortress. It's a location where Jesus, before being crucified, was scourged by the Roman guard. And this person was talking about how you look at the... the um, the stones on the, on the floor of the fortress has these channels, and it's thought that the channels in the fortress floor were used for the blood to drain out from the places where the criminals were scourged. And it was Jesus who was scourged there at that fortress where his blood was shed because why? He resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. He resisted even so that there would not even be deceit in his mouth. And this is where I got so moved listening to what happened to Jesus. There's no 40 minus 1. 40 minus 40 was the number of judgment, and judgment should always be tempered with mercy. And so a Roman scourging was 39 lashes. And a common tool that was used for scourging was this thing called a cat of nine tails. It had nine leather strips coming out from, a, from this whip, and within each strip of leather, leather was broken pieces of glass and metal and bones, all for the purpose of once it, once it hit the back, it would rip off the flesh. And the scourged person would be tied to a post on that Antonia Fortress floor where they would be beaten for their crimes. And so the whole goal for the Romans as they were scourging the criminal was that the criminal would confess their crimes. As the criminal would take a lashing, it would cause them to want to confess so that it would stop. And and if they were confessing their sins, confessing their crimes, then the the beatings would get lighter and lighter so that by the 39th lash, you know, maybe the soldier would just kind of gently whip it on his back. But if a criminal would not confess their crimes, then the beatings would become more severe until they spoke up, until they said what crimes they had done. But if there was no confession, then the harder the beatings would come. Now, when Jesus was scourged, if he committed no sin, Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. If he had nothing to confess, if he wasn't going to say anything that he had done as a crime to lessen the blow, then what does that mean for Jesus? It means that each 
beating became harder and harder, and he received all 39 lashes upon his back. The Bible speaks about how Jesus was beaten beyond human recognition. You would look at him and be, who's that? I don't know. He was so marred that nobody could recognize him anymore. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. There are so many instances of Jesus being reviled. We could spend all morning talking through them all, but Jesus was silent like a lamb before the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. When Jesus opened his mouth in the final hours of his life, it was not to revile. It was not to threaten. It was to pray prayers like this. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus, when he was slapped and spit upon and punched and played dress up in purple robes as they hailed him as king, thorns in his brow, nails in his hands, deriding laughter as people walked by the cross and wagged their heads at him. On the cross, the Bible says that he was railed at. They said things like, you call yourself a savior? Why don't you come down off that cross and save yourself? And yet, he never reviled in return. He never threatened in return. And he certainly never came off that cross. Because love is what held Jesus to that cross. So how do we do? If Jesus is our example, how do we do when we are verbally accosted? When we get reviled, we want to give it back, don't we? But if Jesus is our example, when... His example is limitless. You're never going to come to a point in your life where you say, I'm living just like Jesus. (laughs) There's always more for us to explore, always more for us to endure. Because it's natural to want to repay evil for evil. It's natural to want to repay good for good. But it's supernatural if you can repay good for evil. And that is what Jesus did. Christ is our example. And this is how he was able to do this. At the end of verse 23, it says, when he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't threaten when he suffered. Jesus was able to trust the Father He was able to submit to the path of suffering that the Father had for Jesus to endure. When Jesus suffered, he kept his mind set on God. That's what Peter tells us to do. If we want to live like Christ in the midst of suffering, we have to have our mind set on God. And that is what Jesus did. He practiced mindfulness of God in the midst of suffering so that when he was treated a certain way by man, he could entrust himself to God knowing that God would sort out all the injustice. And we see this And many of the godly examples of people in the Bible were men and women who suffered wrong, trusted in the Lord to vindicate them. Do you know what that word vindicate means? When the Lord vindicates us, to be vindicated is to clear someone of any wrongdoing. 
And the godly men and women of the Bible, you read the Psalms, you find these prayers, Lord, you vindicate me. Lord, you clear me of my guilt. You sort out the injustice. And that's what Jesus was doing as our example. That word entrust means to hand yourself over to the authorities. Turn me in. So Jesus turned himself into the Father and says, I trust you to judge me. I trust you to vindicate me. And the God of justice, what he did was he vindicated us by making Jesus the prisoner and the payment of sin. So why would he ever think of trying to vindicate ourselves when we've been vindicated through Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God? St. Augustine used to pray this prayer very often, O Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Now, if God is a just God, sin has to be judged, doesn't it? Sin cannot go without penalty or payment, right? And so, verse 24, that's how this happened. The Lord vindicated us, gave us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, made that just transaction by making him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And this is how it happened. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He himself, only Jesus could do this. He submitted himself to it. He bore our sins. The sinless one took on our sins, the sins that we committed and deserved to pay the penalty for. That is our sins individually. That is our sins collectively. He paid for our sins, past, present, and future, paid in full. It says he bore our sins in his body, and I I cannot even fully comprehend that fact. But in some way, Jesus himself experienced all the pain and all the penalty of sin inside his body as he hung there on the cross, on the tree. The cross was a wooden beam made from the wood of a tree, and it was a Jewish curse for anyone to hang upon the tree. So the father cursed the son so that he could bless you. The Romans would very rarely, if ever, crucify their own citizens because of how excruciating the torture was. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might follow his example. I feel the like weight in the room. Feels like Good Friday. <laughs> Palm Sunday. It doesn't end here, by the way, guys. Come next Sunday. It's resurrection. But for us to be raised up, we have to be brought low. We have to come to terms with our sins. We have to come to terms with the fact of what Jesus did as he suffered in our place. 
And if he suffered in our place, what ought to be our response to that? We die too. We die to sin and live to righteousness. This was the call of Jesus in Luke 9, 23. If anyone, this is an invitation to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross or her cross daily and follow me. Why in the world was God hanging on a cross to be a savior? That he would clear our debt of sin and to be an example so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. If Jesus, our Lord and Savior and best friend, died on a cross for sins, how could we live any longer in it? We have died to sin, and we are now living to righteousness. Jesus showed us his love for dying on a cross for us, and we show our love to him by dying to sin and living for him. Consider Jesus who died for sinners, and you, every single one of you, are one of them. Have you considered yourself a sinner? Have you considered how Jesus died for sinners? And if you believe that Jesus died for sin, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, when you die to sin and you live to righteousness, there is the wonderful and the powerful healing of Jesus that comes. We are covered in his blood. Let me close with the final verse, which is so beautiful. Verse 55. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I I pray that verse would be fulfilled for every single person in this room this morning. Let me read it for you. Not the person sitting next to you. For you. If you are here, if you have a pulse, then you have sin. (laughs) And if you have sin, you need a savior. And if you are still living in your sin, you need to be healed. You need to return to Jesus. If you've come to the knowledge of the truth, you know the message of the gospel, but you've been wandering off in sin, God is calling you and convicting you right now to suffer the cost of saying no to that sin and turning to the righteousness of Jesus. Suffer the cost. Die today. Be dead to sin. Let me read verse 25 again. I want it to be true for every single one of us, myself included, because I go astray. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. No one can be a shepherd of your soul other than Jesus. No one can oversee the souls of his church like Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Return like a wandering sheep to the shepherd who loves you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. 
As we pray right now, Lord, God, I'm asking for you, good shepherd, to draw in your sheep. Lord, you told us that um, the sheep know their shepherd because they know his voice. God, as you've been speaking this morning through your word, I pray, God, we've been hearing. As we've been hearing, I pray we've been mixing the word with faith. I feel an increase of faith in this place today because you have been proclaimed as crucified for our sins and alive from the dead. And the message of the gospel produces faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And God, I pray if there's anyone in this room, and right now I'm going to ask if you sense God has given you the faith today to believe this message. You want to receive Jesus today. You want to return to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Would you raise your hand so that we can know that God is stirring in your heart, working in you, drawing you to himself? Is there anyone in here? Just put a hand up over your head and say, I want to come back. I see you right over there, brother. I see you right over there. Praise the Lord. Anyone else ready to return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls? It means that he's never left you. He's always been there waiting for you. Come back. I see you there. Come back. If you've been wandering in sin, God's convicting you today. Come back. You know, one of the tools of the shepherd was the stones that would come and it would be cast right in front of the nose of the sheep and it was meant to startle them so they would come back. If you've been startled today, whoa, God's after me. He wants me. I'm resisting him though. You want to keep walking, turn back. If you've been convicted of sin today, you want to return to the shepherd overseer of your souls, come back to him. I saw those hands raised up and maybe in your heart, you're, you're raising up your heart to the Lord and you're saying, I want to believe this. I want to live this. Pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. And Lord, I need a savior. I need more than an example. I need somebody to save me from my sins. Thank you, Jesus, that you are qualified to do that. So Lord, by your blood, would you wash me of my sins? Would you forgive me of every sin, past, present, and future? Today, I'm praying, Lord, that I would return to you. Thank you for being a good shepherd who leads my soul. Thank you for saving my soul today. Thank you for renewing my soul today. God, I turn back to you and I want to stay near to you and I want to hear your voice and I want to walk with you. I want to follow your example. I want to follow in your steps. So lead me, Lord, this day and every day. Lead me in your righteousness. Amen.